Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have David Clark, MD. He's the president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. We're going to talk about ending chronic pain. Uh, the website is ppdassociation.org. So, David, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, great to be with you. Yeah, tell me a bit about your career and uh, how you ended up in the uh, in the area of uh, managing pain or helping people with pain. Well, I started out as a garden variety gastroenterologist. Things were actually going pretty well in my training years. And then in year number eight, I ran into a patient that I didn't know the first thing about diagnosing or treating, which frankly came as a shock. Uh, She had been referred by another university and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with her either. Uh, And to make a long story short, I, I stumbled onto the fact that she was dealing with a significant stress in her life. And it turned out that this is what was responsible for her symptoms. You know, all my training up to that point was that if you've got pain or illness, it's because of a disease or an injury, and we just need to find out what the disease or injury is. But it turns out that a large number of patients, the brain is generating their symptoms, uh, and it's, the symptoms are not coming from the part of their body that seems to be affected. Huh. So the brain, in certain cases, the brain is what's generating the pain, even though physiologically there's no reason for it? Well, there is actually a, a physiologic reason. It turns out that the circuits in the brain can be physically altered by stress. And there are now at least a half a dozen studies using uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging that show that whole variety of conditions, uh, irritable bowel, fibromyalgia, migraines, a condition called somatization disorder, and a number of others are associated with actual physical changes in the brain, and that's why these symptoms are getting generated there. Uh, the good news is that it can be successfully treated. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Okay, well, keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it was just really fascinating when you said that. But, it was um, you know. it was fascinating to me. I mean, I encountered this first patient, and she was you know, had a severe physical medical condition, and I stumbled onto this stress that she was coping with. And I got a psychiatrist involved that I'd heard of who was interested in these uh, issues. Uh, this was at UCLA back in the 80s. And you know, I didn't think anything more about it until I ran into the psychiatrist a few months later, asked what happened to the patient, and the patient was cured just by the psychiatrist talking to her, uh, knowing how to uncover the stresses, uh, how to help the patient cope with them. And the physical condition uh, was completely alleviated by doing that in, a, in less than three months. And that just blew my mind that you could alleviate a serious physical condition, whether it was chronic pain or a bowel problem or any of a variety of other symptoms from head to toe, just by using what we today call pain relief psychotherapy. And and this is the the other thing that blew my mind is when I got into private practice and started looking for this condition, I didn't expect to see more than a couple of patients a year with this. It turned out to be close to 300 a year. 
This is extraordinarily common, uh, and a lot of people have this who don't realize it, and neither do their doctors, unfortunately. So what is this psychotherapy for pain? What does that look like, and how does it work? Well, it's actually uh, quite distinct from the prevailing cognitive behavioral therapy, which is 80% plus of the psychotherapy in the United States today. What, what it, it does several things. There, there are a couple of different subtypes of it, but they have a lot in common. And what they have in common is, number one, they are aiming for cure of the physical condition. They're not just trying to help you live with it or cope with it or survive it. They're actually trying to completely alleviate the symptoms as happened with my, my very first patient. The second thing is that they are focusing on the brain rather than the body. And what's going on in the brain are these nerve circuit changes. And the reason for the nerve circuit changes are stresses in a person's life and frequently stresses that the individual doesn't fully recognize. Um, that it's possible to have a lot more stress uh, than you think you do. And when those issues are uncovered and brought into your conscious awareness, they can be successfully dealt with. And prior to that time, they may have been kind of rumbling along beneath the surface below your awareness and fully capable of causing physical symptoms. And then the third major area that the pain relief psychologies work with and that distinguishes them from, uh, from others uh, is that they focus on the long-term impact of adversity in childhood. And it turns out that issues that happen when you were a kid, even issues that you maybe don't recognize just how difficult they were for you, they can have a long-term impact, you know, decades into your adult life. And they can result in, in stressful personality traits. People become perfectionists. They become very critical of themselves. They choose difficult people to be in relationships with, a, a whole long list of personality traits, unrecognized oh. repressed emotions. And, and finally, there can be triggers in your life that are linked to the past. Yeah, I guess two stories from that I've seen it come to mind. One is like kids in general, you know, a kid falls down and there's like a second or two where they look at you and if you're like, oh my God, are you okay? You know, then they cry. But if you're like, oh, you're okay, you're okay, then they, they're less likely to cry. You know, they're, they're literally looking for the response in some way. I don't know, like what, what, what is your commentary on that phenomenon? Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely a common. I uh, certainly observed that uh, with my own kids. What we're talking about here uh, with the uh, what we call adverse childhood experiences are probably at a different level than that. Uh, some of my patients have been, you know, out and out abused. That very first patient that I spoke about, the major stress that she was dealing with uh, was the fact that she'd been sexually abused actually hundreds of times uh, when she was a girl. So it was a huge stress in her life. Nobody had touched her against her will for 25 years, but it had reached a, a crisis point in her life, and it was manifesting physically rather than uh, emotionally or, or mentally. So these are these are pretty serious levels of stress in many cases that happen to kids. But in other people, it's not quite so obvious. Uh, adversity that a person suffered when they were a child can be uh, more subtle than that. It can be a, a lack of support or approval, or it can be a degree of physical or emotional neglect going on. Uh, it can be that you were made to feel like nothing you ever did was good enough, or that you weren't measuring up, or that you were a second-rate human being. All of these things can have profound impacts that last for years and can be much more stressful than people recognize. You know, another story comes to mind. It's kind of a funny one, but you know, in college, a friend of mine was smoking a cigar. The first time he ever did, 
And he started out to feel so good. And my one friend said, oh, you're fine. You look okay. And the other friend said, no, look at him. He's like turning green. He looks horrible. And then my other friend's like, he's fine. It's okay. And the other guy's, no, look at him. He looks like he's about to throw up. And my friend's like, stop it. Every time you say a good thing, I feel better. Every time you say a bad thing, I feel worse. I just wonder if that's related at all to people's perception of pain in their own circumstance, you know, their thoughts. Yeah, the power of suggestion is very, very strong. My patients, uh, they tend to be very good at taking the negative and burying it somewhere. You know, that they've gone through something that's they wouldn't want their own kid to go through. In fact, that's one of my teaching techniques uh, for patients is to have them imagine themselves on the back in their childhood home as a, a butterfly on the wall, say, and they're observing what's going on. And then all of a sudden, you put a child of their own or a child that they care about into that childhood home. And my patient is asked to imagine watching that kid try to cope with the adversity that's going on. And that can kind of break through uh, the normal human tendency to to take those bad ideas and bad thoughts and stuff them in the back of your head somewhere. So many of my patients have said, you know, I, I had a little bit of stress that went on uh, when I was a kid, but it really wasn't that bad. Other people I know have been through worse and they seem to be okay. I really think I've dealt with that. But when they imagine their own kid growing up in the same environment, even for just a week, uh, it gives them a whole different perspective. Uh, it helps mm. them to c connect with things that maybe they had kind of shoved into the background in the past. And that, that shoving into the background, you know, if there's enough of it, even if you don't realize it's there, it can start manifesting in your body in various ways. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, how do you know how to acknowledge or deal with pain versus letting it affect you negatively, like too much? How, how much do you have to deal with pain and how do you even know, you know what, Instead of just saying, forget about it, moving on, I got to deal with this. Like, what do you do? How do you figure that out? Well, it certainly starts with a medical evaluation. I mean, you need to make sure that there's, you know, you don't have a fracture or you don't have an organ disease or an injury of some kind. We have to do the, the due diligence, you know, diagnostic testing to make sure everything's okay. But if we're not finding anything, if we're not finding a disease or an injury going on, that's when we need to shift our attention to what might be the stress that is causing your brain to be producing these very real symptoms uh, in your body. And I'll start asking people, you know, what's happening in your life at the moment? One of my patients, he was becoming ill whenever he drove into work, but he was fine when he was driving home from work. So naturally, we focused right in on what was happening in his workplace. And there was a huge stress going on that coincided exactly with the timing of his symptoms. So that was 
pretty straightforward. Other people, uh, it's a little more complicated, and I'll start talking to them about you know what happened when you were a kid, you know, what was the environment like, were you supported, did you get affection, did you get raised when you did something well, or was it a more negative uh, kind of experience? And when you start having those conversations, which many people in the medical environment have never had before, nobody who's a healthcare professional has ever asked them these kinds of questions before. And you start hearing things that they're kind of like uh, a lot of my patients are like Olympic weightlifters who've been given 50 pounds more than the world record for their weight class uh, to carry around. And a lot of the time, they're not even aware of the kind of burdens they're carrying around. They they feel like, no, this can't be stress. I can't have a stress-related illness. My life is going reasonably well at this point. But when you really start to talk to them about what's happening right now, what they've been through in the past, you realize they're carrying a great deal more than they thought. Yeah, there was a book called The Body Keeps the Score. I forget the guy's name, but it's like a Dutch name, Van der Week or something like that. Yeah, Van der Kolk. I don't know if you've gone through that. Yeah, oh, okay. You know, I'm a, probably a seminal work in the industry, right? I'm a big fan. Yeah, it was a New York Times bestseller for a couple of years. And I, you know, I fully support everything that's in that book about the impact of stress uh, on the body. I just like to go even deeper than that. Uh, I like to uncover issues that a person had to cope with uh, when they were a kid. Let me tell you another story. This was a, a patient who was my personal record for how long she was ill, 79 years that she had an unexplained physical illness that in spite of being a nurse, you know, where she had ready access to healthcare professionals to evaluate, nobody ever figured out what was going on. And, and the simple question was, all right, you're 87 years old. You've had these symptoms since you were eight. What in the world happened to you when you were eight years old? And it, what happened was that it actually started when she was six, and there she lived on a farm in, uh, in rural Idaho. And there was there were several children in the family. A newborn came along. Mom and dad were real busy on their family farm, so this six-year-old girl was given charge of the newborn baby and basically took care of that kid like any other little girl would take care of a doll. I mean, changed it, fed it, slept with it, played with it for the next two and a half years. And then tragedy struck. The now toddler got appendicitis. And this was 1925 in rural Idaho. Uh, that toddler had no chance and died. And of course, my eight-year-old, my then eight-year-old patient uh, went into shock. You know, had been with this little girl day and night for two and a half years, its entire life, and uh, suddenly it was gone. And at the funeral, that you know, it's a small town. Everybody in the town is at the funeral, and uh, she's in shock. And there's an uncle there who points out that she's the only person in the church who isn't crying. And that just made her guilt level go off right. the charts. You know, she's telling me this, age 87, she still remembers this detail after all those years. And so what happens after that? She starts getting stomach pain. And she doesn't know why she's having stomach pain, but she does know she feels guilty. So she starts taking care of babies on neighboring farms. Uh, she does that for a number of years. She becomes a pediatric nurse for her profession. She has four kids of her own. And all this time, the, the pain is going on. So we have this conversation, and it's you know very clear that she's still carrying this burden of guilt for 79 years. And we had, you know, she was finally able to unburden herself a little bit about this. She hadn't talked about any of this for decades. No one in her family knew about this story. And I had her write a letter. Writing exercises are a key form of treatment. I had her write a letter to the deceased sister 
and just to express her thoughts and feelings and her remorse and, you know, her wishes that things had gone better and just unburdening herself, just putting some of these emotions that had been buried in the back of her head for decades, bringing them out into conscious awareness, putting them into words, and she got a lot better. She, I have to would say she didn't get 100% relief from this. You know, I think it had just gone on for too long for that, but definitely 60, 70% plus improvement in her symptoms after that. It was, That's amazing. And very characteristic of the kinds of patients I see that she was really hadn't thought about this deceased sister for a long time, but was still carrying it. And it, it works very well if you can identify the stress, even when the patient's not initially aware of it, bring it out so that it, there's a chance to talk about it, write about it, and the stress from it can be alleviated and people's physical symptoms improve. Yeah, no, that's amazing. But to hold something for that long and have it affect you that long, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a good example. Yeah, and it's the really shocking thing is that this affects 40% of people who go to see a physician for physical symptoms. It's, it's 50 million people in the United States alone that have a version of this. Obviously not, you know, for 79 years. I mean, that's right, yeah. an extreme example, but it's you know, one of the most common forms of illness uh, there is, but very few healthcare professionals have had any formal training in how to diagnose or treat it. So it ends up being a giant blind spot in the system. Yeah, I'm sure most physicians don't even think about it. They're like, here's a drug. Oh, it's all in your head. Who knows whatever they say, you know, gaslighting or, or medicine, but it doesn't go beyond it to what you're saying. Very Yeah, they may not be telling you that it's all in your head, but many of them will be thinking it, especially after they've done a bunch of tests on you that don't show anything. It uh, Many of them feel like, you know, this isn't part of my job description. You don't have a well, organ disease, so I'm pretty much done with you. It would be a good slogan, though, if you've been told by by physicians that, you know, your condition is all in your head, I can, I can help you. I yes. I can help you is what you could say. You know, come see me if you've been told it's all in your head because you can help get it out of their head. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's not in your head. It's in your brain. And the, the stress changes the circuits in your brain. You know, the title of my first book was uh, They Can't Find Anything Wrong. So that is something that a lot of patients told me over the years. Oh, very, very interesting. Well, how do people react when you find the root of what's bothering them? I would, I would think some of them cry. Some of them get very angry. Maybe they have an explosive reaction or not. I don't know. Like what, what happens at that moment that someone's like, holy cow, I didn't realize that, you know, this happening to me when I was nine years old is the reason. Yeah, there's a often a shock of recognition. Um, I will always remember a Hollywood actress that asked me to consult about symptoms she'd been having for probably 20 years and anywhere from three to six symptoms at a time. And... She had been through a significant stress uh, with her parents. Her parents fought a lot. She was the peacemaker in the family. She was the only child, and she tried to reduce the level of verbal and emotional violence uh, between her parents as best she could. And, you know, clearly as a little girl, it didn't work very well. The parents continued fighting with each other, and she kind of felt like a failure and began getting symptoms as a teenager, and they just kept right on going. And even with all of that, she was telling me she really didn't think that the situation in her home was all that bad. And I was 
looking for a good way to make it clear to her that things were a lot worse than she was trying to tell me. And it turned out she had a uh, beloved niece, four, five, six years old, just absolutely adored this little girl, took her for the weekend frequently and so forth. So I said, look, I imagine that you are as I with the exercise I mentioned earlier, you're a butterfly on the wall of your childhood home, and now your niece is there, and she's trying to cope with your parents, and she's trying to be the peacemaker, and you can't do anything because you're just a butterfly on the wall. You just have to watch your niece try to deal with your parents, and you're going to do this for a week. How is that going to make you feel? And she just stared at me after that. Uh, she just was you know, I went from being a highly verbal, chatty type of person to just complete silence, staring at me, trying to process that idea. And after, you know, probably a couple of minutes, she finally said, you know, at the end of a week of watching that, I would shoot myself. And that was the first time she truly recognized just how difficult it had been, just how high a stress level she had been coping with for all those years. And that was the start of uh, her recovery from this form of illness, was bringing into conscious awareness the very high level of stress she'd had to cope with as a kid. Hmm. I mean, do you tell people, do you prepare them? Hey, you know, if we find something psychologically, it may be very jarring to you, it may be very rattling, it may cause, you know, anger, this, that, and the other response. Just be aware because it may be a sudden rush of feeling that's hard to deal with, let's say. You know, um, there are a few people that are overwhelmed uh, by the feelings that they have, but I've helped uh, over 7,000 people with this condition, and it's really only a handful that have had a, a level of rush of feelings that was kind of too much for them. And even those individuals, it was very temporary, just a matter of a couple of days. Uh, typically, these are patients who are very skilled at repressing emotions. The difficulty is to get behind that repression and help them to experience these emotions uh, in a cognitive way, in a conscious way. And that usually is very positive. It's a recognition that they carried a lot more stress than they thought. There is also recognition that's reinforced by me that they have shown heroic perseverance in coping with everything they had to cope with as kids, that they, it's a point of pride that they can take in themselves for uh, how much they overcame. So the, the whole thing ends up being a very positive experience of more accurate self-recognition. So many of my patients, their self-esteem was just shredded by what they went through as kids. And I try to turn that around and say, look, you didn't wind up in this environment through any fault of your own. It was as if you were born in a dangerous wilderness or a swamp, and you somehow found your way out of there. You survived that environment, and you can take a, a tremendous amount of pride in having done that. Uh, and that ends up being 180-degree flip in their perspective. Their self-esteem starts to move from being negative and terrible and abysmal to being much more appropriately positive and thinking of themselves as heroic, which in many cases is absolutely what they've done. That's really, really cool. It, it alleviates symptoms when people do this. The more those emotions can be put into words, the less they need to be expressed into the body in the form of pain or illness. So you can do this with a person sitting, you know, like in a, like I said, like a psychological situation. They don't need to be hypnotized or drugged or any of that stuff in order for this to work. No, I've been able to do this with people that I've just met, you know, people who've just, who've been referred to me or a physical 
illness. And, you know, I'll often be doing the diagnostic evaluation uh, as well. But we have a conversation about stress, even at the very first visit, to try to get a feel for how much they are coping with, both past and present. And it, I make it just part of a uh, normal office visit routine. Yeah, that's well, really cool. Yeah, it was 35% of the people who came to see me for, you know, 30 years. Yeah, and that's normal as it turns out. I wasn't expecting that, but I uh, had been taught by the psychiatrist uh, that helped that first patient to be looking for this, especially in people that their diagnostic tests were normal. And I expected I was going to see, you know, a handful of patients a year with this. Uh, but she, the psychiatrist, Dr. Kaplan, taught me to be looking for this in everybody who didn't have a, a definite organ disease or injury. And I just found it in patient after patient after patient. And the, the doctors that I've taught how to do this same thing. There was a small group that I taught. They asked me to provide um, our training course for them, three family doctors and a psychologist, and it absolutely transformed their practice. Once they started looking for this, they found it everywhere. And it turned a group of patients who were very frustrating for doctors because they don't know what to do for them. Now that these doctors had been taught what to do, they became very rewarding. One of the doctors took me aside at a conference and said, you know, these concepts have put the joy back into my practice. That's great. Yeah. Is there any danger that people will try to do this on their own or with an inexperienced person or, you know, what, what level of expertise is needed to do this? And is there a training protocol? There is. Uh, we have uh, a lot of training on the ppdassociation.org website. Uh, we've got uh, information from recorded conferences. We've got a uh, training class. There's going to be a new, more advanced training class released uh, in January. But it turns out that these concepts are so powerful that even people who don't have a huge amount of experience are able to use them successfully um, with the majority of patients with this. And you know, there are some who are more complex, uh, are going to need one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy uh, from an experienced professional for a period of time. But there are other people who can just uh, you know, read one of the many books on this subject and get a huge amount of benefit just from that. So there's there's quite a spectrum of need out there. Uh, there's also sort of in between a good book and a good therapist, there's a, an app now called Curable, which has taken the key concepts of this field and, and put them into a really nice user interface. It's very scientifically based and they're getting excellent results with that. What do you do for people that can't remember? They, they have a feeling something's there. They just they can't remember like there are other protocols that help get it out of them. You know, hypnosis. You know, that's where I kind of draw the line in my own expertise. You know, if patient is telling me that they think some things happened and they're not sure, you know, I'll send them on to somebody who's got experience uh, with that. But even then, you know, I can still make the point that if this person did go through something adverse that they can still have that shift in attitude about themselves uh, of having been born in a dangerous environment and taking pride in having survived it. And that alone can reduce a person's stress level significantly. Okay. So what's the next step for this? How, how do you get this in the hands of thousands of practitioners and doctors to change the face of medicine so it's more effective and it's you know less gaslighting or people feel less gaslighted? 
Yeah, it's sort of inadvertent gaslighting, unfortunately. We're bringing this uh, information to everybody we can. I give speeches all over North America and Europe. We have abundant and growing information on our website. The other URL for the website is endchronicpain.org. It's a little easier to remember, but we have evidence-based books that we recommend, apps, um, training courses, recorded conferences, all of that is on there. And we also sponsor research and documentary films um, to try to bring the word to as many people as possible. One of the films we were associated with, I found out yesterday, has been seen by 55,000 people around the world. And the other two films are probably uh, in that ballpark. But the research uh, that we've supported uh, is also very important because that's what changes medical practices. When you see a scientific study that backs up these ideas, you're much more likely to use it in your practice. The Boulder Back Pain Study, for example, they took 150 people with uh, 10 years on average of chronic back pain, and they had two control groups and a group that got pain relief psychology treatment. And the group that got the psychotherapy treatment, their pain scores dropped dramatically. Two-thirds of them, uh, within a month, uh, dropped their pain scores to zero. I mean, they were completely pain-free after having had pain in their backs for 10 years. It was just an extraordinary outcome from the pain relief psychology. And that level of improvement has now been uh, replicated in uh, Los Angeles, in Boston. There's studies in uh, Nova Scotia that have shown this. So it's not just one study. It's a growing number. And the outcomes of these studies, the superb results that they've gotten, have unlocked uh, major research funding from the National Institutes of Health and uh, other places so that even more research is on its way. Any unusual cases or strange outliers that either, I don't know, didn't fit this model or were really, really difficult to, uh, to work with for some reason? Yeah, that's actually the topic of the course that I'm releasing in January is I've picked out some of the most challenging cases uh, from my career and explain how I assessed those and treated them because the diagnosis was sometimes uh, as difficult as the treatment. One story that I love to tell, it's the first story uh, in my first book, was a patient that I was asked to see who was in the hospital because she'd had a, an attack of severe dizziness accompanied by vomiting. And I went in to see her just as I would any other consultation. And what she said to me is something I've never heard from any other patient before or since, which was, thank you for coming, but you're wasting your time with me. You'd be much better off going to see your other patients. And I asked her why she said that. And she said, well, I've, uh, I live in, uh, I won't say the university that she lives next to, but it's a major internationally known university in the western half of the United States. And she had been hospitalized there 60 times in the last 15 years and had the same exact attack she was having now and no diagnosis. She had seen a dozen specialists and when they were all done with what they could do to her. They had a psychiatrist come and see her who said, nope, there's no depression. There's no post-traumatic stress. She's, you know, psychologically fine. And so she had no hope. She was absolutely in despair. And she thought, that's why she thought uh, for good reason that I'd be wasting my time. So I said, well, you know, I've kind of made lost causes a specialty of mine in the last several years. And, you know, why don't you give me a half an hour and tell me your story and maybe I can come up with something. So she kind of shr- shrugged her shoulders and her husband's looking down at his shoes. And it turned out 
less than an hour later, we had a confirmed diagnosis. And on top of that, just bringing the- What was it? She had stress-related illness. She had a psychophysiologic disorder. The the stress in her case was that uh, all of her attacks of illness were connected to her abusive mother. She was 50 years old. Mother was in her 70s. And mother was still verbally and emotionally abusing her every chance she got. But the emotions around that were repressed and they were outside of her conscious awareness. The key that unlocked it was that she was always getting one of her attacks of uh, severe dizziness and vomiting whenever she passed through a little town about 45 minutes from where she lived. It turned out the only time she ever went through that little town was when she was on her way to visit her mother. So it was you know, the, sitting in the car, driving to go visit mom, and all that emotional tension about how horrible it was going to be to be visiting with mom for a couple of days. And it all would sort of manifest itself in her body uh, by the time she got 45 minutes away from home. So, you know, when I really was the light bulb moment for her is I said, well, what happens if you drive 45 minutes in some other direction and you're not going to visit mom? And that was when she looked up at the ceiling and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. She could drive 45 minutes anywhere else. She could drive an hour and 45 minutes anywhere else and she'd be fine. What did and she it, end up doing? Did she like, you know, punch her mom in the face or stop talking to her or what happened? Or get therapy or? Yeah, I, I suggested that she get some therapy. But in her case, you know, she's a very smart woman. And I think just bringing this whole set of ideas that we've been talking about into her conscious awareness, that was enough for her. And she clearly knew that she needed to set some strong boundaries between herself and her mom. And I absolutely empowered her to do that. I said, you know, nobody deserves to be physically ill over something like this. You need right. to draw some lines with this woman so that she's not doing this to you anymore. She called me a year later and said she'd gone the whole year without a single attack. And she had previously been having um, up to 10 a year. So it sounds like from the examples you give, I'm seeing commonalities, but what uh, what commonalities do you see? What kind of traumas tend to do this and burrow their way into someone's physicality and soul and which ones bounce off of them and don't affect them? Well, a lot depends on, you know, whether you have anything positive in your life when you're a kid that can give you some resilience. Uh, a lot of my patients have told me that they had a, a teacher or a grandparent who help them to understand that they were good people, worthy people, people who were deserving of care and love and support and uh, affection. And that is a significant uh, protective factor for a lot of people and helps to mitigate the harm that was happening to them elsewhere in their lives. But, you know, there's no single type of treatment. I think the common denominator is anything that impacts your self-esteem in a negative way on a long-term basis. Uh, so many of my patients uh, end up reacting to that with, they're very hard on themselves. They tend not to assert themselves very well. They may become perfectionists. They may be very self-critical. They may be the kinds of people that are taking care of everybody else in their world as a way of you know, compensating for their own negative self-image, but they never really put themselves on the list of people they take care of. Um, so it it ends up compounding the stress um, that they have in their own lives, and they're not necessarily seeing where it came from or how it got started, because after all, none of us has a parallel life to compare ourselves with. So many of my patients, when they look back, they're not recognizing just how tough it was. 
how can someone know, uh-oh, this thing that happened to me just now, if I'm not careful, it's going to stay with me for a very long time. Is there any way to diagnose that so that um, this doesn't happen going forward and someone, at least they won't fall into it, you know, from this point forward? Yeah, very difficult. You know, when somebody is a child and they can be going through all kinds of adversity and nobody knows about it. And you yourself as a kid, you know, you are relying on your adult caregivers for their support, both, you know, physical support, emotional support, and you don't have any parallel life to compare it with. So if you're being mistreated, it's just going to feel normal to you. And it can take a long time to recognize, you know, that wasn't normal. And I deserved a lot better uh, than what I got. And I need to think of myself as heroic for having survived that adversity that happened to me through no fault of my own. And once you start recognizing that your own strength, taking pride in what you overcame, then a lot of things in life change. You start taking care, better care of yourself. You start insisting on better, more mutually supportive personal relationships. You may end relationships that are toxic for you, or you may set strong boundaries between yourself and people or situations that are toxic for you. That's one of the wonderful things about this work is not only can we alleviate serious physical symptoms in somebody. I was speaking with a panelist at our Zoom conference last night who had had incapacitating migraines for 17 years that came to an end as a result of this work. Um, but not only do those physical symptoms come to an end, but a whole lot of positive outcomes in your life happen as well. Have you looked at uh, moral injury? I recently came across this concept. Uh, this lady named Nancy Sherman wrote a book. It was about people in the military. You know, they've seen and done sometimes terrible things. And so it, it, it went against their values and they became what's called morally injured. Like, a, you know, imagine if like you were a prostitute for 10 years, how could you have a normal relationship after that? Or let's say you were, uh, I don't know, in Nazi Germany and you were forced uh, by the Nazis to like kill your own brother or something in order for your whole family to, you know, these horrible things. You know, I'd run into that and I would think that those things can cause problems that would last for a very long time. It's not necessarily childhood stuff, but, you know, more adult type stuff, things people get into. Yeah, absolutely. Adult stresses can happen as well. I, I focus on the childhood issues because many people are not aware of those and they're, they're very, very common. They're present in a majority of my patients with this, but absolutely adult sources of stress uh, are common as well. Remember very well one of my patients who was a veteran who uh, had been involved in, I believe it was Gulf War number one, uh, where a tank with a, a snowplow kind of thing attached to it had pushed a huge amount of sand uh, into the trenches uh, where a number of Iraqi soldiers were located and basically uh, buried them all and killed them. He had been involved in that and couldn't get it out of his mind. And it led to a, you know, a heavy alcohol problem. And you know the tears are streaming down his face in my office when he's telling me about this. And nobody in the healthcare system had asked him about you know his military experience. I mean, he'd been in a combat zone uh, and he was having unexplained symptoms. And nobody asked him, hey, did anything happen when you were in combat that was difficult for you? You know, it's just very frustrating for me, as you can hear in that tone of my voice, that my fellow healthcare professionals uh, didn't think to ask this man about that. Yeah, 
So you don't specialize in that, but I guess other people may. Have you thought about, I mean, like, are you training other physicians, other people to use this protocol? And are they, you know, is anyone using it in either unexpected ways or, again, with groups that you're not using it with? It is definitely spreading. I mean, we're uh, we're seeing it uh, beginning to be taught in medical schools, which is great. I want to have this taught uh, as a routine uh, in every medical school in the world. I mean, we're we're talking about a condition that affects forty percent of people that come to see a primary care physician. Uh, the population is eighty percent larger than uh, the number of diabetics out there. So we should clearly be spending at least as much time teaching our future healthcare professionals about this as we do teaching them about diabetes. And it, it's starting to happen. I mean, I I used to have to, you know, email places and say, here is what I'm an expert in. I would love to come and talk to your group about this. I don't have to do that anymore. I'm, I get emails, uh, you know, several times a week now asking me to do presentations for them. So there's a, a real interest in this. I think the uh, opioid epidemic has been opioid overuse and addiction and Frankly, a death epidemic has been a driver for this. Um, people are looking for treatments uh, for chronic pain that are not involving opioids. I think that's a big driver for uh, using these techniques. Well, very good. This has been a very good interview, very important. Where can people find out and get help? Because undoubtedly, a percentage of the listeners will uh, will, ha- will be having these kind of problems. So wh- where do they go if they, you know, not everyone in the world can see you, unfortunately, but um, if they want to, can they see you and how? If not, what can they read or do to, to start helping themselves find care? Yeah, thank you for asking. I, I closed my practice some years ago to become a full-time uh, teaching doctor and uh, running our nonprofit. So we have put lots of resources at endchronicpain.org. We have a membership program now as well that enables people to join monthly webinars where they can ask questions of experts like myself and others who've had uh, decades of experience doing this. There are recorded conferences, webinar-based courses. We recommend uh, self-help books, uh, of which there are several now, that are based solidly in the scientific evidence in this field. Um, So there are a ton more resources available now than there were when I started, let's put it that way. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming and for doing this. I mean, super important work. It affects so many people. So I really appreciate you being here, Dave. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. I really appreciate your interest and uh, your help in spreading the word. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.